there are no experts, nor are there any professionals in the supernatural realm of prayer. There are no experts, there are no professionals in the supernatural realm of prayer. That's what I want to address in this afternoon together. You know, the fact is, we're all learners. In fact, we should be lifelong learners. You know how you define a disciple, right? A disciple is a learner. And that's my heart. I've not learned it all. You probably admit that you've not learned it all. And that's particularly true in this matter of prayer. Therefore, there's still a lot for you and I to learn. Let's try and do a little bit of that here this afternoon. Do you realize that our prayer lives are a journey? You could think of it, you could think of prayer this way. Imagine what prayer is like and then consider prayer as an unhurried walk. Meditate on that for a while. That unhurried walk, I believe, is totally alien to a carnal mind. And I understand that. I understand that because I have flesh. I'm prone to wander. I'm depraved from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. You know, the fact is we'd rather do something, and I'm thinking of doing something with my hands. We'd rather do something. We'd, in fact, we'd rather do anything than pray because men are doers. But the sad truth is most often, men are unwilling to pray until they have to. And God, because he knows everything about us, allows the winds of adversity to blow on our lives, and then we have no choice. We can't fix it. So we've got to pray. You see, nothing will bring a man to his knees and a man to God any faster than the trials of life. And it's there, in the crucible of life, that a man cries out to God, and by so doing, he's conformed to the posture of prayer. And you know what the posture of prayer is? It's the cry of my soul. God, help me. You know, that happens like it did to me earlier this year when our one and only son had a brain tumor. I get a call on a Saturday afternoon and it's his wife as she's driving to the airport in Dallas to catch a flight to Denver because our son Daniel had had a seizure and was in the hospital in Denver, and they found a benign meningioma. 
What are you going to do when your 28-year-old son has a brain tumor? You're going to pray. You know, it's been said that there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than a soul that's untutored in prayer and piety. Can I say that again? Think about this. There's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than a soul that is untutored in prayer and piety. Now, if you think about that, and you evaluate your own prayer life, and you find it a big zero, that doesn't speak well of one's walk with God. I call prayerlessness the great forfeiture. I want to talk to you about that. I call prayerlessness a man, a young man, an old man, who doesn't bow the knee to prayer as the great forfeiture. Why? Because I do not view prayer as something I do as a consequence of my role for being a missionary or a preacher. Prayer is not something I do because I'm a missionary or because I pastor a church. I view prayer as part and parcel of my relationship with God because I know God, I pray. Because God knows me, I want to pray. Let's dwell on that a little bit further. Why is this important? Because Jesus set us up and he set us apart when he said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You see, the life that Jesus promised entails all the rights and privileges of a man having a relationship with God. Because Jesus came to earth, I can have a relationship with the true and living God, the creator God. And if I do not seize hold of that, that's the great forfeiture. I miss out. To fail to avail myself to the abundance that Jesus has promised me is one of the greatest tragedies of the entire Christian life. Imagine it this way. Which one of us would marry a wife and choose never to speak to her after saying, I do? I mean, wouldn't you consider that a forfeiture? And now... You ask Christ to come into your heart and be your savior and have no relationship with him? Which one of us would give birth to a child and never hunger to cultivate a relationship with a child? We're talking about the same thing because God and I are to be relational. Clement of Alexandria said this, prayer is keeping company with God. That's why it should be an unhurried walk, an unhurried journey. You say, Brother Pat, is it really that easy? No. <laughs> no, it's not that easy. And for me personally, I'll just be totally transparent with you. 
It's never been as difficult in my life to pray effectively as it is right now. Brian, and it goes back to what you and I were visiting about on the bench back there. We're living in the age of distraction. And I can't get over it. As I was sharing with Brian, you know, when I, when the Lord changed my life in the early 1980s, I went to seminary and all. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have personal computers. Um, about the only challenge was television. And if you're a good independent fundamental Baptist back then, some of you didn't even have one. So, I mean, life was so simple. You know what I'm saying? But life now is connected. I mean, you have to live connected. And life is very distracting. But those are not the root of prayerlessness. Let me share with you several obstacles to a, vib a vibrant prayer life, okay? This isn't a Bible study. It's a Christian talk. It's brethren being with brethren and sharing thoughts, sharing experiences. And you may have questions for me at the end, you may not. But I want to begin with the first obstacle to a vibrant prayer life being unyielded lives. Unyielded lives. My children grew up and had this thought drilled into their brain, inside one side and out the other. Obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse. And if they heard that once, they heard it a million times. Obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse. This spring, I spent three hours one afternoon in a video call, FaceTime, with one of my dearest Southeast Asian friends. Brother Carl Wong became friends with my family way back in the early 1990s, right up through 2006 when we left Singapore. So you could say those 18 years my family lived in Singapore, Carl Wong, who lived in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, one of my dearest, dearest friends. I mean, anybody I brought to Southeast Asia, anytime I vacationed and went up to Kuala Lumpur, Carl would take my family out to dinner. Carl would, we'd vacation together. I mean, we, we just spent hours and hours of time and fellowship, and, and he loved my family, and we loved him. And, you know, around 14 years ago, and here was a guy who was starting, even though he was a businessman, he was starting to seriously consider going into the Lord's work. And some around, time around 2006, something happened in Carl's life that drew him away from God. And he went on a 14-year journey up until this past spring where he just turned his back on God. And I mean, it broke my heart. It broke many of our hearts who knew and loved Carl. Now, the honest truth is, God has brought painful, I mean painful, circumstances into Carl's life that have caused him to really turn back and seek the face of God. And I hope it all works out. I hope God, God gets the glory. But Carl has lost a lot 
of precious time and precious opportunities, and he knows it. At the same time, I realize we cannot make up in prayer what we have lost in disobedience. I'm talking about unyielded lives as the first obstacle to prayer. When you walk away from God, you're walking away from prayer, you're walking away from blessings, you're walking away from God's plan for your life. I'll tell you, it was a good day in Pat Delaney's life when I learned to pray this way. Lord, all I ask is that the will of God in heaven would be revealed through my life on earth. Let me say that again. This is my prayer. It's been my prayer, man, for, for 15, 20 years. Lord, all I ask is that the will of God in heaven would be revealed through my life here on earth. That's only going to happen when I accept the Garden of Gethsemane in my life. When I accept the crucible of Golgotha in my life. What am I saying? I'm saying this. You and I need to die to ourselves. And until we come to that point where it is death to self, we lose. I want to help you understand this. Life is not about me. Life is not about what I want. In fact, there's a sense in which that's, that's gross to a thrice holy God. Life in reality Biblical reality, life in biblical reality is about Christ in me, the hope of glory. And only as I surrender my life to Christ, only as you surrender your life to Christ, can we ever hope to obtain all that we really need in life. And God has promised to meet those needs according to his riches and glory. So the first hindrance to a vibrant prayer life is an unyielded life. I challenge you, don't be found there. Number two, another hindrance to a vibrant prayer life is unsound theology. Now, I'm thankful you're in a church where the passion of the pulpit is to find you rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That's good. But what an incredible contrast can be found in these two chapters side by side, Psalm 13 and 14, if you want to note this. Psalm 13 and 14. Let me turn there. It just struck me as I was having devotions one morning, this contrast. Because look at verses 5 and 6, the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter 13 of Psalm 13. Let me read verses 5 and 6, and then we'll note the beginning of verse 14. And I'm just drawing your attention to this for sake of contrast. Psalm 13, verse 5 says, But I have trusted in thy mercy, and my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Here we're finding a very jovial, excited, passionate psalmist. And then the first verse of verse 14, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Do you see the absence of hope 
mercy, salvation? What is the absence of hope, mercy, and salvation? It's the absence of God. And that's where the fool lives. The greatest hindrance to prayer is unbelief. And that's the fool. At the core of unbelief is an ignorance of God. And you don't want to be found there. How sad to know the one to whom we pray. How sad, excuse me, how sad not to know the one to whom we pray. That's a tragedy. Over the past decade, I finally came to my own personal definition of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. You know, I grew up, I say I grew up, I say over the last 40 years of my life, um, the classic definition of the fear of the Lord never satisfied me. What's the classic definition of fear of the Lord? Reverential awe for God. That would be what I'd call the classic definition of the fear of the Lord. You've probably read that. Reverential awe. I could never, no matter how hard I tried, wrap my mind around what does it mean, reverential awe for God, for the fear of the Lord definition. But you know, one day, I was reading through Psalm 2. Can I invite you to, excuse me, Proverbs 2. Can I invite you to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 2? And as I meditated on this, I said, there it is, aha. This was an aha moment for me, and I got it. And what I mean when I say I got it is, I got my tangible definition for the fear of the Lord. Look at and follow with me through Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. I draw your attention to the if-then conditional statements. My son, if, number one, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thy ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart unto understanding. Verse 3, number 2. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding. Verse 4, this is number 3, conditional statement. If thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then, then. Notice verse 5, then. So we've had the three ifs, then, verse 5, then. Shalt thou understand what? The fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. Gentlemen, for me, I define the fear of the Lord as an ever-deepening, ever-increasing and greater understanding of who my God is. And that I base on Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If I will receive his words, incline my ear to his understanding, cry after knowledge, and if I will seek her as silver, then I'll understand the fear of the Lord. And the only satisfying answer to life's problems will always be an ever-increasing intimacy with Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, we grow to know God through our dependency. 
If you live nonchalant, I don't need God. Not dependent upon him for your daily bread, which we're taught to pray for in the Beatitudes. You're living counterculture to the God who made you. You see, our dependency is a reflection of what faith is. And I'm depending upon the shed blood as the perfect sin payment for me, Christ's resurrection for my justification spiritually, and our self-reliance as opposed to God-dependence is literally an affront to a holy God. So, unsound theology. Always be striving to grow in your knowledge of who your God is. All right? Third hindrance to a vibrant prayer life, unconfessed sin. On this point, you know, the scriptures could not be more clear. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Proverbs 28, 9, he that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. And then I want to remind you of the tutelage of Susanna Wesley to her son regarding her definition of sin. She said, whatever weakens your reasoning impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the power and authority of the flesh over the spirit, that to you is sin, no matter how good it seems. Brethren, deal with your sin. I'm talking to young boys. I'm talking to older men. Sin will either keep you from praying or prayer will keep you from sinning. So the choice is ours. Fourth, obstacle to a vibrant prayer life. An untutored spirit. An untutored spirit. In Luke 11, 1, what did the disciples ask Jesus to do? They said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. You know what that means? That means prayer is a learned behavior. Did you get it? You learn how to pray over time. Furthermore, not only is prayer a learned behavior, but it's a spiritual exercise that results in building spiritual muscle. You don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to pray for an hour. You learn to pray for five minutes first. You know, I can look back to my life when I would take my wristwatch off and set it there, and I'd pray, and then I'd take a pee. How long have I been praying? And you know, I can look back to the days when I would pray for five minutes, and then I, it was a great achievement to when I, I actually was continually able to pray for 15 minutes. And then when I got to praying for half an hour, I thought I was a professional Christian at that point, you know. You know, toward the end of our ministry in Singapore, I started, I was passionate about this, and I wanted to teach my people how to pray. 
And, and our people loved, that, I think that's why our midweek service was Friday nights, because they would spend so much time after the service in groups of twos and threes and fours in prayer. And it was nothing for them, and it was a blessing to my heart to see them pray for an hour after the Bible study. And they just keep going on and on. That was when I thought, wow, this is sweet. But prayer is an exercise of spiritual muscle. Let me make an application with that or make a comparison here. I have a brother-in-law, one of Mary's younger brothers, Tommy, is a marathoner. More than that, Tommy is an ultra-marathoner, and that means he runs 100-milers. Can you imagine running 100 miles? It takes 24 hours, but you can do it. And it's through rough terrain, by the way. He lives in West Virginia, so, I mean, he, he built up his running muscles in West Virginia. But, you know, Tommy hasn't always been a, a marathoner. I mean, he's run Boston five, six times. He was there during the bombing. He finished 45 minutes before the bombing went off years ago. But Tommy wasn't always a marathoner. In fact, I can remember when Tommy was out of shape and way overweight, and when he saw one of his sons run his first half mile, he was so convicted, he says, I gotta change. And so he decided to change. And he did so incrementally. And he relied on wise counsel in order to avoid injury. Several of Tommy's running partners, I know for a fact today, because we talk about it often, and whenever he comes and stays with us, he always gets up at 4.30 in the morning and runs 15 miles, you know, and around where I live. But Tommy's running partners are doctors. I mean, these guys know their bodies. And if you and I are going to learn how to pray, then we need to welcome into our lives godly mentors. Mary and I recently got involved in a small Christian running club. I did it for my wife. She said, Pat, I need exercise. And we're kind of entering the empty nester stage. And it's, I like it, guys. <laughs> I like it. And she says, Pat, I, I need this. I said, honey, I'll do it for you. But I put off saying that for a long time, okay? <laughs> But as we've gotten into it, and we're over two months into it, because we used to run together in our pre-marriage days, in our early married life. And once I turned 50, I was done with running. I don't want any injuries now, okay? And I have atrial fibrillation. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very cautious about all these things. But, you know, since we've gotten into the, the small group of believers, the trainers... I couldn't help but say week after week, run after run, say, Mary, these trainers are so encouraging. Like last week when Hans, you have a Hans here, don't you? This guy. First time we go there, 
They said, don't do like Hans. They had just taught us about the right shoes to wear, and Hans comes in these sandals, you know. <laughs> He's like one of those guys who <laughs> runs barefoot or in sandals. But he says to me, because I whined a lot when we all started, you know, I don't, want, I don't know if I can do this, and even though it's incremental increasing. And he says, I don't want to hear any more whining from you, Patrick. You're killing it. So, but you know, think about that. Think about, here I am getting encouragement from fellow runners. We need to encourage one another in prayer. And that's part of my heart here with you this afternoon. Would you be encouraged if you and I just spent some time on our knees together and at the end of it I put my arm around you and said, man, you're killing it. I think God really hungers to hear more from you. Another hindrance to prayer is unfinished business. If there's one thing I've experienced over the past 30 years of ministry is that people today, and it's been this way for a long time, are coming into the church with a lot of baggage. People carry around a crock pot of sins, sins of the flesh, sins of the spirit, and their lives are a mess. Coupled with the sins of the past, there's the shame that's associated with sin. And this makes people afraid. It makes people too weak or too lazy to deal with all this baggage. I mean, you thoroughly mess up your life. And then you look at the prospects of how you fix it. That's very discouraging, brethren. And I can never forget the first time I was at a home in Singapore doing a visit on a couple, and the wife just blasted out. I could never forgive that person. And I sat back and I thought, oops, this is going to take a while. Because the sin of an unforgiving spirit literally cuts us off at the knees. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And if we're going to make progress in the area of our, our prayer life, then we've got to deal with the unfinished business of unforgiven sin. Not to mention all the other types of sin. So unfinished business, business with God. I gotta deal with this so that nothing hinders my relationship to God. Last but not least, another hindrance to prayer. Number six, unfounded fears. See, where are you coming from? Well, let's think about it. That word unfounded means to be lacking a sound basis. It means groundless. It means unwarranted. Now turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 29, 25. 
Proverbs 29, 25. You know, I can never get enough of the book of Proverbs. I've probably been reading the proverb of the day for the last 30 plus years of my life, and I think I always will. That's a great warm-up chapter for devotions. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, and I want to dissect this verse and show you something you may not have meditated on before. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Simple, isn't it? Well, keep your eyes on that. Because in that verse, you can switch the words fear and trust using them interchangeably. Now look at the verse, and I'll read it for you this way. For example, trusting in man brings a snare, but whoso fears the Lord shall be safe. I reversed it, didn't I? Now think about it. You and I may be familiar with the idea of the fear of man. There have been books written on it, right? Uh, when people are big and God is small. That book, I think it's written by Ed Welch, is all about the fear of man. Okay? So you may be familiar with the idea of the fear of man, but we may be unable to explain what the fear of man is. So I want to help you. Think of it this way. It's the same thing as putting your trust in man. Fear of man is the same thing as putting your trust in man. Then what does it mean to trust in the Lord? It means the same thing as the fear of the Lord. Here's my point. You can't separate trusting in God from the fear of God. They are like Siamese twins. They're inseparable. So I shared with you earlier the fact that I define the fear of the Lord as the ever-increasing knowledge of who my God is. And you can't separate trusting in Him from fearing Him but you've got to get to know him, to trust him, and to fear him. So what unfounded fear has caused you to struggle in your prayer life? James 1.8 says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If your fears have shut down your prayer life, then you need those groundless fears plucked out by the Word of God. I don't know what you're facing right now. I've got a daughter who Tuesday this week, and she's a nurse. She's taught nursing, but she's having major surgery, and she's prone to fear. And the best counsel I can give Rebecca is flee to the scriptures because that's how we root out groundless fears. Here's a great example of why we must remain 
accountable as brethren. The fact is, you and I need each other. Whether it's for accountability, tutelage, encouragement, or simply friendship. Brethren, we need each other. And doesn't the Bible teach us, let the older men teach the younger men. How's your prayer life this afternoon? You got room to grow? Pastor Roscoe.